We'll begin reading in verse number one of chapter number six of the book of Judges. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, a familiar refrain. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. And because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made them dens, um, which are in the mountains, and the caves and strongholds. And so it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites came up, and the Amalekites and the children of the east, even they came up against them. And they encamped against them, and destroyed the increase of the earth, till thou come unto Gaza, and left no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep nor ox nor ass. For they came up with their cattle and their tents, and they came as grasshoppers for multitude. For both they and their camels were without number, and they entered into the land to destroy it. The picture is grasshoppers. All you have to do is like look in that field out there right now, and you get an idea what this is like. Um, just swarms of these Midianites just destroying the land. Verse number six, And Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites, and the children of Israel cried unto the Lord. They're, they're yelping out in desperation. And it came to pass, when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord because of the Midianites, that the Lord sent a prophet unto the children of Israel, which said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt, and brought you forth out of the house of bondage. And I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, and out of the hand of all that oppressed you, and drave them out from before you, and gave you their land. I did all these things for you. And I said unto you this simple command, I am the Lord your God. Fear not the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell, but ye have not obeyed my voice. And the prophet's gone. That's his message. Verse number 11. And there came an angel of the Lord, and sat under an oak which was in Ophrah, that pertained unto Joash the Abiezrite, and his son Gideon threshed wheat by the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him, and said unto him, The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. And Gideon said unto him, O my Lord, if the Lord be with us, why then is this befallen us? And where are all the miracles which our fathers told us of, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord hath forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. And the Lord looked upon him and said, Go in this thy might, and thou shalt save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have not I sent thee? And he said unto him, O my Lord, wherewith shall I save Israel? My family is poor in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said unto him, Surely... I will be with thee. And thou shalt smite the Midianites as one man. This was a promise. So verse number 17, And he said unto him, This is Gideon, If now I have found grace in thy sight, then show me a sign that thou talkest with me. So he's saying to God, Please make it clear to me that this is actually a message from God and that this angel is not just some stranger under an oak tree. Okay? So Gideon prepares a meal. He takes it to this angel, and through a series of events, the meal's consumed in fire, and the angel disappears. And so Gideon, of course, has confidence that this was a message from God. So let's look at verse number 25. And it came to pass the same night that the Lord said unto him, 
Take thy father's young bullock, even the second bullock of seven years old, and throw down the altar of Baal that thy father hath, and cut down the grove that is by it, and build an altar unto the Lord thy God under the top of this rock in the ordered place, and take the second bullock and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the grove which thou shalt cut down. Then Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had said unto him. And so it was, because he feared his father's household, and the men of the city, that he could not do it by day, that he did it by night. So the men of the city, um, they heard that this statue had been thrown down. They're, of course, furious. And um, we'll talk about that in a minute. But Gideon goes out into the land, calls together an army, and he's about to go up against Midian. So look at verse number 36. God's already demonstrated himself in, in a couple of ways. Um, but let's look at verse number 36. And Gideon said unto God, If thou wilt save Israel by mine hand, as thou hast said, I will put a fleece of wool on the floor. And if the dew be on the fleece only, and it be dry upon the earth beside, then shall I know that thou wilt save Israel by mine hand, as thou hast said. And it was so. For he rose up early on the morrow, and thrust the fleece together, and wringed the dew out of the fleece, a bowl full of water. Okay, but that wasn't enough for Gideon. Verse number 39, And Gideon said unto God, Let not thine anger be hot against me, and I will speak but this once. Let me prove, I pray thee, but this once with the fleece. Let it now be dry only upon the fleece, and upon all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, for it was dry upon the fleece only, and there was dew on all the ground. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the time together as um, a church family. I thank you for the songs of hope we've been able to sing. And I just pray that you would be with us now as we look at your word. Um, give us understanding and just speak to our hearts, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I thank you for standing. You may be seated. <clears throat> the book of Judges is made up of a series of what we would call cycles. Um, these cycles are not necessarily in chronological order. Um, they could be, but they're not necessarily so. Instead, the author is spinning a narrative. Um, he's telling a story of the progressive decline and in, in ever-worsening spiritual condition of the nation of Israel. And this decline is reflected in Israel's deliverers, or the text uses the word judges. Um, these men and women God used to deliver the nation of Israel start out admirably, as in the case of Othniel. He's really a very, um, as best we can tell, reputable man to be admired. But it gets progressively worse to the point we get to the end of the book of Judges where we end up with Samson. And the man is honestly fundamentally broken in so many ways. God used him, but he's just a broken man, which reflected the brokenness of Israel. Not only was Israel broken, but her leaders and her deliverers were broken, just reflecting the state of the nation. God made himself quite clear at the beginning of the book through Joshua. He said, don't worship their gods. It will be a snare to you. If you do, you will be like an animal in a steel trap, maimed and in pain. It will not be pleasant. That, he made it so clear. It will leave you maimed and miserable. But the allure of the Canaanites' prosperity which the Israelites would have attributed to their gods, uh, was just more than they could bear. It's what they so desperately wanted. And Israel would find themselves in bondage without hope, without prosperity, paying tribute 
and enslaved to foreigners. In the depths of their suffering, the nation would cry out to their God, not necessarily in repentance, but it was just in desperation and pain. And God, in turn, would raise up a deliverer. And this is the cycle that happened over and over and over and over again. It happens so much to the point that by the time we get to Judges chapter 6, we're hardly surprised as the reader or even frustrated when we read in verse 1, and the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. Um, we're honestly just kind of expecting it. And f- frankly, even the biblical writer didn't really elaborate on what they did here. We'll get a hint later on as we move through the text, but um, the writer simply states the fact we all expect, and that is that they did evil in the sight of the Lord. But beginning with the Gideon cycle, things did change. This was different. Um, Israel was experiencing a ruthless existence like they'd never experienced before, and God's response was unlike any before. The nation of Israel ended up oppressed at the hand of the Midianites. Midian was a region to, I would have been to the southeast of Israel in the northern part of the Arabian Peninsula. And these Midianites traveled up to Israel and invaded Israel. And, and the nation of Israel was truly ravaged by these, these invading people for seven years. So every year, like clockwork, what would happen is the Israelites would sow their seed. And the time of harvest would come. Their crops would grow. And about the time of harvest, here would come a raiding band of Midianites. And they came in like warriors. And they would decimate everything in their path. They would come in on their camels. And this would have been like tanks. You know, the the Israelites didn't have any way to defend against this. And they would come in and just start raiding the land. And they would push the Israelites fleeing for their lives out of their homes. They would leave their homes and run up into the hills. And they would make for themselves hiding spots in caves and under rocks. And if you can imagine being a man in your home, seeing the harvest, your only source of food for an entire year. And here come the Midianites. And you think, we're going to do this again. And they come in, raiding with their weapons. You grab your wife, you grab your kids, you run up into the mountains trying to grab something that you can hold on to. And all you can do is sit up there, look down into the valley, and watch as they just destroy everything. And the Midianites, they would, they would bring in their cattle, they would bring in their, um, their herds, and they would just take the Israelites' herds and just wrap it all into theirs. Well, if you're taking a, a farmer's ox in that day, that's like taking a mechanic's tools. This, was the only, this is the only way they could produce food. So they would let their cattle run out in the fields, they would trample the harvest, they would let them eat the harvest, just destroy it all, and they just wreaked havoc and left nothing but destruction. And this happened year after year after year. It was so devastating, the Bible said they were like grasshoppers. And we're not agrarian, so that doesn't necessarily mean a lot to us. But all you have to do is like Google locust invasion or something like that in your phone, and you'll get an idea of what this looked like. Just swarms darkening the sky. It's still a big problem in other parts of the world. Just coming through, destroying every piece of vegetation, and and nothing was left behind. Um, You'll see in the movie Bugs Life. That's what I think of. I'm not making light of something that was so serious. But it's like there's a line in there. The queen ant says, 
This is our lot in life. It happens every year. They come, they eat, they leave. It's not a lot, but it's our lot, right? And that's, that's where these people were at, just decimated um, and leaving them with nothing. And this left Israel impoverished. Like, they were to the point of poverty. They didn't have food. They were starving for seven years. And it was in this desperate situation that the nation of Israel just cries out to God in pain. They just yelped in pain. And in the past when this happened, immediately following, like up to this point in the book of Judges, immediately following, God would say, and God, or the, the text says, and God raised up a deliverer. That was the next phrase. But this time was different. And what God did next may at first seem absurd to us. God didn't send a deliverer. God sent a prophet. Or we might say a preacher. From our perspective, Israel needed a deliverer. They needed a warrior to raise up an army and to defend. Sending a prophet to the nation of Israel at this point in time seems a lot like sending a philosopher into the middle of a gunfight, right? Like, it's like, dude, you're going to get killed. This is not a good idea, but that's what God does. They needed deliverance, and God gave them a proclaimer of his word. So this prophet comes in with this message, and just try to imagine he's going through the villages and towns and the hillsides of the, the nation of Israel, and the prophet proclaimed God's grace, first and foremost. He reminded the nation of just how gracious God had been. You were in bondage. You were in slavery. He chose you, not because of any merit of your own. He chose you. He brought you into the land of Canaan. He used you to destroy his enemies, and he gave you their land. He's been so good to you for no reason. He's been so gracious. And then the prophet reminded the nation of God's simple demand. God had some conditions for the people of Israel. There was a covenant here. He said, I am to be your God. Do not place your faith in other gods. I am your God. I, I want you to live a life of faith in me for all your needs. I am enough. I, I want you to live a life of faith that compels you to obey my words. I, I, I want you to live a life that compels you to obey my commands. Such trust in me and this is so key because it's the same for us, such trust in me will lead to a life of peace and satisfaction that you will not find anywhere else. Okay, so that's his, that's his demand. But then the prophet just levels this accusation. <laughs> and it's so simple and yet so profound. He says, you have not obeyed my voice. And boom, the prophet's gone. Like we don't hear another word from that man. Doesn't exactly sound like a message of hope. God said, I was not your God because you, you chose to believe something other than me in my commands, which has led to your disobedience. Their unbelief led to disobedience. It was because of their failure to obey in faith um, God's simple instruction. God spelled, spelled it out pretty clearly. He, he said, here's the path to the good life in Canaan. You want the good life in Canaan? Here's the path. I'm your God, follow my commands. But the children of Israel went, mm, I don't know. 
I don't know if that's really the best way because you look at the, the, you look at the land of Canaan. Here was a land that was flowing with milk and honey. It's described that way. And grapes as long as a man, a clusters of grapes as long as a man, just to say that this was an incredibly prosperous land. And the Israelites would have attributed all of that to their gods, namely Baal. So they look at this and they say, eh, I mean, this looks like it's working pretty well for the Canaanites. I don't know, God. I don't know. Just look at how prosperous they are. God, I don't know that your way is truly the path to what I want. It was this disobedience that had led to their bondage. And the prophet made that clear. So this, this may seem absurd to us, but God sent a prophet, not a deliverer, because Israel needed more than immediate relief. Israel needed to understand why it was they were in bondage. And God's way with His people has not changed. I wonder how many times we're begging God to deliver us from our circumstances, and He's saying to us, all I want you to do is look in the mirror. We so often, not always, but so often, live in messes of our own making. One man said, we, we may want to escape from our circumstances while God wants us to interpret our circumstances. Sometimes we, we may need understanding more than relief. Sometimes God must give us insight before He dare grant safety. God may be trying to teach us something through the hardship, and we want the hardship to go away, but God is making a point. And you might say that's cruel, but it's actually a demonstration of His grace. One of the kindest things God does for us is to bring us under the criticism of His Word to expose the reasons for our misery. And He does this through the preaching of our pastor and the counsel of friends, older and younger, and the reading of His Word. So this is the context into which Gideon enters the story. He honestly, at this point, was no hero. He was a Baal worshiper like the rest of Israel. Um, the message of this prophet would have been directed at him, just like the rest of the nation. And he would have been familiar with this message of the prophet. And, and that gives us some explanation for his forlorn response. Sometime after the prophet made his, his proclamation, there came an angel of the Lord to sit under an oak tree belonging to the man named Joash. This was the father of Gideon. So nearby, Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press. This would have been, in that day they would have separated the wheat from the papery chaff in an open place where the wind could carry away the chaff. Okay, but here's Gideon in a wine press, which would have been a carved out area and a rock that was designed to hold the juice of grapes as they were smashed. He's down in here. It's not an ideal place to be threshing wheat. And this was a hiding place, not a threshing floor. So this just kind of explains, just reinforces the devastation of the Midianites. He's hiding, just trying to hold on to a little bit of food. So here's Gideon hiding in this wine press. And to this man in hiding, the angel of the Lord came and said, The Lord, okay, and if you look at your Bibles, it's the Lord in all caps. Okay, this is the proper name of God. This is like we might refer to our pastor is pastor, but then his name is Troy. Like it's his, his proper name. Okay? This is Yahweh speaking. The, the proper name of God, the God of Israel. He says, the Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Now that's an odd thing to say to a man in hiding. 
Okay, but this angel is trying to spur Gideon to a response. Okay, he's, trying to, he's trying to push him to action. He's claiming to be a messenger of the Lord. Gideon evidently, based on his response, doesn't quite believe this is a messenger from God. But he's trying to spur him to a response. And, and Gideon's response is, he says, please. He says, oh my Lord. Basically, basically, again, that's lowercase Lord. He's saying just sir. It's a polite response. He's not, he's not acknowledging that this is God. He says, he says oh, oh my Lord, please, sir. Basically saying, seriously, just look around. Obviously, God is not with us. Okay? We are being oppressed by the Midianites. Um, where are his miracles? Last time I heard when God was with us, there was like the parting of the sea. Why aren't we getting manna from the sky? Where are his miracles? Why isn't he delivering us from these people? It's what he did in the past. Okay, so he's saying, please, sir, where are the miracles? Why isn't he giving us victory over our enemies? You heard the same prophet I did. God has forsaken us. He's the one who caused the oppression of the Midianites in the first place. So the Lord responded to Gideon directly through his angel. He said, go in your strength and deliver Israel from the Midianites. I've sent you. Go. I'm telling you to do this thing. And, and Gideon responds, sir, how am I going to go? I am, I am poor. I am the least of all of my siblings. Okay, he's just making excuses here. And God responded with a promise. He, he makes a promise and he states a fact. He said, I will be with you. You will, you will see the Midianites fall at your hand. And what a promise. God comes in with this promise like a trump card above all of Gideon's excuses, lays it down in front of him and says, I will be with you. Okay, and we would say, yes, God will be with you. Like, what a great promise. Okay, but to a man of little faith, that is not that comforting. And he was a man of little faith. This is a promise, but it's only going to be reassuring if you actually believe it's true and significant. As we'll see in just a moment, Gideon was truly struggling to believe this promise. He heard it, and he could give intellectual assent to it, but to believe it in such a way that it affected his heart and his life was a totally different matter. So Gideon requested a sign that this message was actually coming from God. I mean, you can imagine if a man walks up to you and you're sitting under an oak tree, he'd <laughs> be like, are you sure you're from God? Um, so he asked for a sign. Gideon asked the man to wait. He goes into his house, makes a meal of bread and meat, and brings this out to the angel and sets it on a rock for him to eat. And the angel raises his staff and touches the meal and it just poof goes up in a ball of fire and the angel's gone. And as I would probably do too, Gideon falls on his face um, because he knows he's been speaking to Yahweh, the, the true God. Um, and in his case, if, not, if he didn't believe it was the true God, it was at least a deity. <laughs> and that was terrifying. So he falls on his face. So God is about to call Gideon to a point of decision. Either he demonstrates faith in God's word by obedience and experiences victory, that's one option, or he chooses to continue to worship Baal and enjoy Midianite oppression. But he can't have both. He has to place faith in one. Now we, we need to try to put ourselves in 
in Gideon's shoes to us as 21st century Americans um, living in a pretty much non-superstitious Christian country, this is absurd to us because we think obviously the right answer is not Baal. But to them, this was a very real decision. They actually believed Baal was a deity. Um, this was a hard decision for them. He was a god of fertility and rain, meaning it was up to him whether or not they were successful in cultivating food. And that's not often something we have to worry much about. Um, but it was, it was life or death for them. They came into the land of Canaan, this land flowing milk and honey. They would attribute, attributed all of this prosperity to the gods of the Canaanites. So when faced with the command of the one true God, don't have any other gods, this would have been a very hard decision. You didn't want to tick off Baal because you might not have food if you did. Okay, in, in their minds. It was an issue of faith that's difficult for us to relate to. It was a question of not only will God keep His word, but is He even capable of keeping His word as opposed to Baal? This is, this is the dichotomy in their minds. Um, to help us relate, I'll use an idol that Jesus referenced, and He referenced it so often, and that's money. Because this, this hits close to home for us. We can hear Pastor Daniel stand here Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday and talk about giving. And we can hear him say, money will never satisfy you. Hoard it and it will be a snare. The more you have, the more anxiety. Where you put your money is where your heart is. And on and on and on and on and on. But then we see the guy with money. Okay? We see the guy with money, the things he has, the activities he enjoys, the life he lives, the lifestyle he enjoys. And we think, eh, I don't know. That looks pretty good to me. So we're in, this, we're in this position where we have this promise from God and we're left thinking, uh, uh, this is a hard choice. And we struggle to make that choice. We're not worshiping Baal, but we have our own idols and it's just as hard to choose between them um, for us as it was for these people. So this point of deciding faith that God is about to call Gideon to was no small matter. This was a big choice. It would have been a big choice in Gideon's mind. So it happened that same night, God came to Gideon again with a command. That's um, the same night the angel comes to him. Gideon was to destroy the altar of Baal that was in his father's house. Evidently, this community had a statue to Baal, and it was right close to home for Gideon. So God wanted him to tear this down, pull it down with some animals, um, then take the remnants, build an altar, take the groves, the wood that made up the structure surrounding this altar, use it to, to slaughter these animals and burn a sacrifice to Yahweh right on the remnants of the destroyed idol. And so this is exactly what Gideon did. He took 10 of his servants, and under cover of night, for fear of his father and for fear of the townsmen, he goes to his father's house and pulls down the altar of Baal. And this is so ironic, because he destroys it. They all survive, meaning Baal didn't strike them with lightning. He destroys it. They build an altar. They take the wood of Baal's little temple, put it on there, and offer a sacrifice to Yahweh. So in the morning, as you can imagine, the men of the town discover that this altar has been desecrated, and they're furious. Okay? Not because they necessarily loved Baal, but whoever did this is messing with our food supply. Okay? Seriously, we already have enough problems with the Midianites. We don't need you messing with Baal too. Okay? So they're furious. 
they find out through talking that Gideon is the one responsible, and they form a posse and march to Joash's house, and they show up at the door. Joash comes to the door, and I love his challenge. He says, guys, if Baal's God, I think he can contend for himself. Um, and so they were all like, yeah, I guess that makes sense. And the posse is dissipated. So Gideon has, has obeyed, and he is now about to go up to battle against the Midianites. So he goes out into the countryside. He calls all of these people of Israel together to himself. They form this army, and he's about to go into battle. And at this point, God has demonstrated multiple times now that he is God and supreme over all others. He, he sent an angelic messenger uh, and, and demonstrated that it was an angel. He, he protected Gideon from Baal. Um, he was not hurt by Baal after destroying his altar. And then God demonstrated that he had the ability to change the hearts and minds of men and protected him from the people of the town. And so Gideon seen all of this, and yet Gideon continued to demonstrate a shaky faith, even after God repeatedly demonstrated his complete sovereignty. And this is truly just a reflection of our nature as human beings. Gideon prayed to God. He said, God, if you're really going to do what you said you're going to do, please, just, just this once, I'm going to put some wool out on the ground. And if it's wet in the morning, but the ground is dry, I'll know you're going to do this. Okay? That's a fair enough challenge, but what's the problem here? God has already said he's going to do it. He made it really clear. So this was an issue of faith for Gideon, not an issue of clear communication for God. He's made it clear. So this is exactly what God does. The wool is soaking wet, so much so that Gideon's able to wring out an entire bowl's worth of water out of this wool. But Gideon reasoned it's a small thing for wool to hold water, right? If it rains, your shirt gets soaked and it holds it. It's heavy. So he said, what if, God, what if you, just this once, don't be angry with me. What if I put out the wool um, and the, the ground is wet, but the wool is dry? And that's what God does. The ground is wet, but the wool is dry. And God humored Gideon um, to bring him to a point of faith. And such was Gideon's journey of faith. It's not over, but this was the beginning. And ours often looks no different. It is in our nature as human beings, even as Christians, to faithlessly question the clear revelation of God. And this comes with consequences. But God is faithful to come alongside his own and call us back to a place of faith in what he's already revealed to be true. Gideon struggled to follow through in obedience to God's commands, not because God wasn't clear. It wasn't the issue here, but because Gideon struggled to believe what God had made quite clear. Gideon had to get to a place where he actually believed God is sovereign, not just was told God is sovereign. Gideon had to get to a place where he actually believed God was greater than Baal. Gideon had to get to a place where he actually believed God would be with him. He had to get to a place where he actually believed God would give him the victory over the Midianites. He had to get to a place where he actually believed God's ways are better than Canaan's ways. He had to get to a place where he actually believed obedience to God's command was the only path to Canaan actually being the promised land it was supposed to be in the first place. Gideon had to get to a place where he actually believed that it was God who made Israel flourish, not Baal. We would, 
we would rarely be able to articulate what goes on in our minds and hearts when we decide in a moment to trade God's truth and God's promises for something else. We would certainly never claim to not believe what God says, especially as Christians. However, when we violate God's clear instruction or fail to rest in His promises, fundamentally, we are demonstrating our own lack of faith in what God has revealed to be true. Let's bring this home with some examples. God's word is full of promises. Okay, for Gideon, God's promise was, I will be with you. And my goodness, what a promise. But Gideon's failure to wholeheartedly believe this promise was demonstrated by his repeated need for proof. In his failure to believe, he forfeited, forfeited the incredible peace that could have come from such a promise. Okay, for us, Isaiah 26.3 says, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. So if I know this promise, and most of us do, it's common promise that we would all know, but I'm overwhelmed with worry, and I'm taking my worry anywhere other than God in prayer, if I'm staying my mind on anything other than God, maybe I should ask myself, do I really believe this promise? Really? Okay, our default answer is yes. Like it's in God's word and we're Christians. We believe it, right? Do I really believe it? That's different and we often don't. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 says, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. So if I know this promise, but I cannot seem to get over, uh, and I'm constantly anguishing over my own weaknesses and insufficiencies, I should ask myself, do I really believe this promise? Really? Do I actually believe that God demonstrates His strength through my weakness? Romans 8.28 says, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to His purpose. So if I know this promise, and yet I cannot get, I cannot get over and forgive God for what He let happen to me. Okay? If I can't, then I need to ask myself, do I really believe this promise? And for some people, that would be a really hard one to believe. Like, I, I, you don't know what I've been through. Nobody I know this promise. Do you believe it? Do I believe it? When we fail to rest in the promises we know, we know it here, but when we fail to believe here in what we know fundamentally, we are demonstrating our own lack of faith in what God has revealed to be true. And we may think, why do I feel this way? And God is trying to say to us, you're simply experiencing the consequences of the promises you've chosen to trust, which are not mine. God's work no, I'm sorry, God's word is full of instruction and truth for living. Jesus calls each of us to follow him. He calls us to be his disciples. He calls us to a way of life. And he's pretty clear it's not going to be easy, but it will be good. At the end of Matthew chapter 7, Jesus has been preaching you know, the Sermon on the Mount. He's, he's spelling out what the Christian life is supposed to look like. And he says, if you do what I say and you, you follow my words, you're going to have a good life. Your life is going to be stable. It's going to stand when life gets hard. Okay, this is the path to the good life. 
But then Matthew chapter 5 says, You've heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. So if I hear this instruction for living from Jesus, but instead I choose to hate my enemy for whatever reason, even if it's just because it makes me feel good. Okay? I've chosen, I've chosen in that moment to place my faith in some other source of happiness and satisfaction. And Jesus is saying, my way is the best way, but I've chosen another. And the consequences are a life of bitterness and misery. Matthew chapter 6 says, Take heed that ye do not your alms before men to be seen of them. Otherwise you have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. So if I hear the instruction for living, but instead I choose to make my contribution to be seen of and praised by men, I'm demonstrating that what I really believe is that the praise of men is greater than the reward that comes from God. And, and, and greater than the whole good, meaningful life that Jesus promised. And the consequence is, the false God I've chosen is a shallow life endlessly pursuing the praise of men, but never really satisfied. And forfeiting the goodness that God has to offer. Okay? Because of what I chose to believe. There's a difference between what I know up here and what I believe in here. And our lack of faith in God is often demonstrated by our failure to rest in His promises and live by His commands. There are endless treasures and victories at the end of God's promises and commands. But if we choose another God, if we choose to believe in alternate truth, we will experience what that God has to offer, but it's never as sweet as His promise. It's often bitter. And if it's, not, if it's not actually damaging, it's at least disappointing. The reality for Gideon and for Israel was that they could not have victory and freedom from their bondage until they actually started demonstrating faith in what God had clearly said. And we are no different. We so often find ourselves experiencing the consequences the simple consequences of our own idolatry, of what we choose to believe. Belief affects behavior. One leads to the other. And we cannot experience the freedom and victory God wants to give until we start demonstrating real faith in His Word by our obedience. We demonstrate our faith through our obedience. All right, let's consider that as we stand this evening.